The Idaho student investigation, what you need to know, the remains discovered in the landfill, their Quentin Simon, and then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Welcome to Crime Talk. My name is Scott Reich. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Hit that little bell for notifications when we go live or put up new content. And remember, you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps simply by typing in Crime Talk. And remember, it's Tuesday. So what does that mean? That's right. Our Tuesday night live, 6 p.m. Mountain Time. We're going live. Please join us. We'll be talking about, well, the Idaho case, the Lori Vallow case, and anything else that you want to talk about. Now, Let's support the people that support Crime Talk. Please go to crimetalksearch.com. Why? So that you can get yourself a background subscription service. And when you get that background subscription service, you are going to be able to do as many background checks as you can desire. All right, all you have to do, go to the website, sign up, you type in the person's name, literally while you wait, a background report is created. It is then sent to you, and it's going to include information regarding civil judgments, marital, divorce records, whether somebody has a criminal history, maybe whether somebody actually has to be put on one of those public registries, if you know what I mean, things that people may not tell you when they're getting to know you. You need to check them out. And if you're dating somebody, particularly online, it is dating malpractice if you do not do a background search. Just going to Google is not enough. So go to crimetalksearch.com. You'll be happy you did. All right, let's go ahead and open the docket for November 29th, 2022. The Idaho student investigation, what you need to know. All right, the stabbing murders of four friends from the University of Idaho while they slept has obviously sent shockwaves throughout not only that small college town in Idaho, but the rest of the country. Now, after partying at separate locations, all of the under 22 victims were killed at their off-campus home in the dead of night in a motiveless slaying. Now, local police and the FBI have examined thousands of pieces of evidence and hundreds of tips, but two weeks after the deaths, haven't announced a suspect or located the murder weapon. And with a killer on the loose, many students have declined to return to the university for the final week of the semester. And the father of one of the victims says that he's, well, a little frustrated by the police's response in this particular case. So what do we know so far that we can actually say that we know? Not speculation, all right? So Kaylee Goncalves, she graduated from Lake City High School in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho in 2019 and attended the University of Idaho. She has been to high school with another victim, Madison Mogan, who was her best friend. Now, Goncalves shared a photo uh, with her roommate hours before her murder, writing, one lucky girl to be surrounded by these people. Now, Goncalves was uh, studying in the uh, College of Letters of Arts and Sciences and uh, was majoring in general studies. Then we have Madison Mogan. She was 21. She apparently worked multiple jobs, did extremely well in school, and somehow always was able to find time to prioritize her friends and family. 
Now, Mogan had been dating Jake Schreiger, whose world has been turned upside down by her death. And Mogan was majoring in marketing and was a member of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. Then we have Zena Kernodal. She was 20 years old. Now, according to the university, Kernodal was a junior studying marketing and a member of the sorority Pi Beta Phi. Now, Zena had also been dating Ethan Chapman, who was also murdered at the same time she was. Now, Ethan Chapman was 20. Now, he was a freshman majoring in recreational sports and tourism management and was one of a set of triplets, all of whom attended the University of Idaho. He was a member of the Sigma Chi fraternity, and before the murders, the friends spent their Saturday night partying like many college students do. Now, Chapin and Kernodal went to a gathering at his fraternity and were home around 1.45 a.m. Gankalves and Mogan went to a local bar called the Corner Club. They left there about 1.30 a.m. They stopped at a late-night food truck where they chatted with others online while waiting for their food. At approximately 1.30 a.m., the pair were caught on camera purchasing a portion of the carbonara pasta from Grub Wandering Kitchen, a food truck that offers late-night eats on the weekends. Parked up close to the Moscow branch of the State Farm Insurance Company and outdoor store Hyper Spud Sports, Madison and Kaylee were last glimpsed walking away towards what police have called a private party driver for their final ride home. Now, the rideshare driver, who has been eliminated as a suspect, drove the two students home, and they arrived just before 2 a.m., now, the route that they drove takes them less than five minutes to complete and cuts through the University of Idaho campus and actually passes the Sigma Chi house on the right where Zena and Ethan spent their last night before taking a left up King Road towards their home. The drive also goes past the Moscow Police Department headquarters, which can be seen on the left just as the route turns right onto the campus. Now, according to the police, the pair arrived home at about 1.45 at the same time Ethan and Zena and 45 minutes after their other roommates, Dylan Mortensen and Bethany Funk, sur who survived the attack. Now, less than two hours later, Madison, Kaylee, Zena, and Ethan were dead. Now, the autopsy results showed that all four died from stab wounds to the chest, with police saying that the murder weapon was largely a large military-style knife, which has not been found. What we do know is that once home, Gonkalves called her on-again, off-again boyfriend, Jack Ducour, seven times between 2.26 and 2.52 a.m., but he didn't answer because he was asleep. Now, police have ruled out Ducour as a suspect. Now, the four murdered students were found on the second and third floor of their home, but the two roommates living on the ground floor, Bethany Funk and Dylan Mortensen, were spared. It's unclear why the two roommates were not harmed and if they slept through the attacks. Funk and Mortensen had been out that night and arrived home just after 1 a.m., the morning of the murder. Now, the first Dylan and Bethany knew of their roommate's fate came after about 11 a.m. when they woke up and went upstairs to find them dead. Neither had spoken publicly about the murders, but have showed off matching tattoos to commemorate their fallen friends. It has also emerged that murdered roommate's Kaylee's dog, Murphy, was at the house when the police responded about midday. However, authorities have not confirmed if they believe the dog was in the house at the time of the homicides. And police have yet to locate a murder weapon, as we noted, but 
They are believed to be seeking a fixed blade knife, possibly a K-bar styled combat knife. We can show you a picture of one of those. Now, the Moscow building supply general manager, a guy by the name of Scott Judas, has said that police officers stopped by the retailer a few times in the week following the murders to ask if they had sold any knives of that type. They didn't sell that particular K-Bar style knife. Now, police have noted that they have processed more than 1,000 tips, collected 103 pieces of evidence, conducted almost 100 interviews, and taken more than 4,000 photographs of the crime scene. Now, police maintain that the murders were a targeted attack, but admitted they are still no closer to identifying the murderer today than they were the morning of the murders. Uh, police, like I said, have admitted there's no suspects and they have not recovered a weapon. Police say that they are not releasing a profile that they're developing of the suspect because it could lead to more fear and suspicion in the college town, which is already on edge following the homicides, with some students not returning to uh, finish classes in person. It's been suggested that the killer likely entered the 2,300 square foot home between 3 and 6 a.m. through a sliding door and made their way through three bedrooms carrying out their knife killings, something that's very up close and personal when it comes with a knife. Now, Goncalves and Mogan were killed on the third floor, while Chapin and Carnotal were killed in a bed they shared on the second floor. None of the victims showed any signs of any sort of sexual assault, and that's according to the police reports. And as we've noted, no motive yet is identified for why the murders took place. So the police don't know who's responsible for the killings, but they have ruled out a slew of suspects, including Goncalves' ex-boyfriend, uh, Mr. Decour, the man seen with Goncalves and Mogan at the food truck, the person who drove the two girls home, the surviving two roommates, Mortensen and Funk, and the victims themselves, as there is no evidence of a murder-suicide and the friends summoned to the house by the surviving roommates on the morning of November 13th. Now, rumors have circulated that Goncalves had said that she had a stalker, but police had been unable to substantiate that claim. And police have taken a little bit of heat for their lack of development of leads in this particular case. They've also waffled on their communication to the public, first saying they didn't believe there's an ongoing community risk, even though they kind of walked that statement back a little bit because obviously the community is at risk because somebody committed four homicides and they haven't been apprehended. I would say that's a risk. Police also said that they don't know if the murderer fled and or is hiding in plain sight there in Moscow, Idaho. Now, police say that they have now mostly finished investigating the crime scene and that they have plans to release the scene uh, back to the owner of the property, but noted that it won't be released until the police are positive that there is nothing left to retrieve from the crime scene. That's right. They have to collect things of evidentiary value. And sometimes collecting nothing is something of evidentiary value. I know. Yes. Particularly for the defense in this particular case. Now, most of the police work is being done um, behind the scenes, specifically the uh, crime lab testing that's taking place. Now, police ha have done 150 interviews, they've stated, and the information that is being received is building what they believe to be the whole picture. Obviously, since they don't have a suspect at this time and they don't have a weapon, 
or an eyewitness, it's a little difficult to figure out exactly what happened. So since the police don't have that witness, they have to try and build what they believe is the picture of what occurred on the night. They have to look at the relationships of the four victims. Was there anything suspicious in any of those relationships? Are there any tidbits of information that they can draw from that and try to develop something of evidentiary value that could provide a suspect or some motive as to the killings? They're going to have to look and see if was there anything that occurred that particular evening or was it something that had been brewing for a while? And obviously, the um, they have to look at all the movements of the residents themselves. So that means basically everyone is a suspect until they are not a suspect. Now, remember, many of the students were allowed to finish their classes and not return. So if the alleged perpetrator was a student, what a great way to stay away. If the perpetrator lives in the area, literally hiding in plain sight, unless there is some physical evidence or some sort of statement or admission made to somebody, I would think that that suspect, that potential suspect, the perpetrator, is probably feeling pretty comfortable right about now. We'll keep you updated on any new developments. All right, remains that were found in the landfill in Georgia confirmed to be Quentin Simon. That's right, the FBI has confirmed that the bones found in the Georgia landfill are those of missing toddler Quentin Simon. The two-year-old was reported missing uh, last month and his mother was arrested last week on charges including murder. Now, detectives were searching the landfill after they suspected the little boy's body was placed in a dumpster. And the FBI used DNA analysis to confirm that the bones belonged to 20-month-old Quentin. Police arrested Quentin's mother, Lilani Simon, on charges of malice murder, concealing the death of another person, false reporting, and making false statements involving her son. Now, Simon called police on October 5th to report that her son was missing from his playpen in their home just outside of Savannah, Georgia. The remains that were determined to be Quentin's were found in a landfill on November 18th. Now, Lilani was the prime suspect in the disappearance and death of the 20-month-old child. Child Protective Services had also removed her two other children from her custody on October 12th. Now, Quinton's mother had lost custody of him and his brother and had just been ordered by the state to start paying child support when Quinton vanished. A week beforehand, she was told she'd need to cough up $150 a month for the boys. And, well, if one of them had uh, passed away, that bill would be reduced by 50 bucks. On October 5th, Quinton's mother claimed she woke up at 9.30 a.m. and found the door to the house open. Uh, Quinton, she said, was nowhere to be found. Now, his stepfather, Daniel Yunkin, told police he last saw the boy at 6 a.m. that morning. The family quickly fell under suspicion for obvious reasons. Quinton's babysitter immediately voiced her concern over his disappearance. The babysitter said she thought it was strange that hours before he was reported missing, she was told not to come to work that day to look after him. It's almost like mom knew something, wasn't it? Well, last month's Simon's mother, Billy Joe, shared her theory on the case and uh, much more in a bombshell conversation with the child's biological father, Henry Bubba Moss. Now, in the audio recording, which is about 11 minutes long, Billy Joe could be heard saying, I feel honestly and frankly, Bubba, I'm not going to lie to you. I feel like there was an accident. 
I feel like something happened while Quentin was in the bathtub and maybe he drowned and they were both high. That's my theory. Hell, they should have just called the police if something like that happened, Bubba replied. If you're high as hell, you do stupid stuff, said Billy Joe. Now, Billy Joe uh, was away when the 20-month-old grandson vanished from their home in Savannah on October 5th. At one stage of the uh, investigation, Simon tried to pin uh, Quinton's disappearance on the biological father, claiming her ex-lover snatched the toddler from her home in the darkness of the night. Obviously, it prompted police to track down and confront Quinton's long-absent father shortly after uh, he was reported missing. He was cleared. That's right. Mom tried to pin the disappearance on dad. We'll give her the presumption of innocence like we do everybody on this show who has not been convicted or pled guilty in a court of law. All right. And finally, our dumb criminal of the day. Please meet Thomas Pinson. He was charged with domestic battery after an argument uh, the other day with his mother over what they describe as financial disputes and job-related drama. Well, apparently it turned violent, and Mr. Pinson allegedly grabbed his mother, Carmen, and threw her to the ground, which apparently aggravated an existing injury. Now, according to the police, the attack occurred in the presence of Pinson's father. Now, what makes this kind of unique is that Mr. Pinson has his mother's full name tattooed on his chest clearly some sort of love-hate relationship. Well, Mr. Pinson, who fled the residence before police arrived, was arrested on a misdemeanor charge and booked into jail, later released on a $5,000 bond in order to can't have any contact with his mom and to stay away from the home. Now, Mr. Pinson, this is not his first run-in with the law and his mom. Now, uh, Pinson was arrested in 2017 for allegedly shoving his mother once again to the ground during a 3.45 a.m. confrontation in their home where his mom, Carmen, hit her head as a result of being shoved. Police reported that at the time. Now, Mr. Pinson fled the residence before the police arrived. <laughs> it's almost like, well, I don't know, this happens, I guess, his modus operandi. Oh, that's right, what they call 404B evidence. Well, prosecutors subsequently declined to pursue a domestic battery charge against Mr. Pinson after his mother notified the court that she did not wish to prosecute the misdemeanor case against her son. Perhaps that's when Mr. Pinson got his mom's name tattooed to her chest. He kind of owed her one, didn't he? Well, we'll see if she crumbles this time as well. Either way, Mr. Pinson, you are a dumb criminal of the day. You know, first of all, you don't, you, you're not, you don't push or you don't hit a lady. But pushing your mom? Man, that's just dumb. Anyway, that's all we got for you today. Thanks for watching. Please join us tonight, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, for our live show. And immediately following that, we will do our Patreon show where you can call in live. So if you have not become a Patreon member yet, now would be the time to do so. Have a wonderful day, not just a great day. We'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.